So we're in the middle of a series entitled, uh, You Keep Using That Word, and today is actually going to be the last installment. If you've missed any of those, all of the talks are now online. We've covered Bible, we've covered the word faith, we've talked about the word religion, we've talked about the word gospel, saved, spirit, and in uh, all of those converse, all of those talks we've been challenging ourselves to think about the ways in which those words are being used and the ways in which those words um, and what it means to us and trying to think about those words in, in new, new ways. And today is our last of the series, and we're going to take two words, church and Christian, and put them together and ask the question, you keep using those words, do you really think it means what you think it means? And we're going to start with the word Christian. Christian. Did you want to introduce this First um, I here. think when we first started this series, one of the things Kevin mentioned was that those of you who are familiar with the band Mumford and Sons, and they're phenomenal, that um, the lead singer was being interviewed, and he grew up in a uh, vineyard church and, you know, is a, is a Christian kid um, who's now in part of this fantastic band. And they asked him, you know, are you a Christian? And he kind of said, I, I'm not comfortable using that word. And maybe there's some of us here who have felt at times when somebody asks us about our faith background, we've used other words like, I'm a believer, or I'm a follower of Jesus, or um, I'm a person of faith. But sometimes in our current culture, the word Christian has started to mean things that we don't think that it means. And some of us have decided to try to grab other terms in order to explain what we think it means because we don't always think it means what the news thinks it means, or the media, or other things, um, Fox News, or CNN, or MSNBC.com, or whoever has the biggest sign down in front of whatever courthouse, at, or whatever stadium sporting event. Um, what does it really mean when we use the word Christian? Um, and so one of the things that we've been talking about is that that word has been misused a bit. And then we were thrilled to find that Ira Glass of This American Life thinks so. So now we know we're on the right track. So we have a little clip for him, and he's going to talk a bit about the word Christian. So one of the things that happens in your show is you place a unique, um, I, it seems to me, maybe I'm coming at it from my point of view, but I, you have a, a number of shows you do around Christians. And you seem you seem intrigued. I, I, probably yes. the way I put it, you seem intrigued. Um, and well, because I feel like Christians are really horribly covered by the media. Like like Christians seem like a really ripe you don't target think we, of you don't opportunity. Think, you don't think we Christians deserve this? What do you mean? The political involvement and the public stances that they take. That you don't think it's well deserved at times. That the that they get covered, covered by the media. Uh huh. No. You don't. No. Okay. Talk about that. You know, most subgroups in America will complain to you about the way that they're portrayed in the media, right? Um, but but Christians seem to have just like an especially bad situation of it. Do you and, feel sorry and, for them? Well, I mean, it's hard to feel sorry for a group that's like the dominant group in a country. But <laughs> like, I just I, I acknowledge that 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 you all are being badly treated by the press, and and uh, and there came a point like early on in the show where I just noticed that. The way the Christians are portrayed in movies and on television is almost always as these crazy people, you know, like, like these doctrinaire, hothead, crazy people, whereas the Christians in my life were all incredibly wonderful and thoughtful and, and had very ambiguous, uh, complicated feelings in their beliefs and seemed to be totally generous-hearted and totally open to, to like, a lot of different... Um, kinds of people in their lives and just seem to be, like even the people who are fundamentalists, like not just like, you know, you're sort of like garden variety Protestants, but the people who are really right. like fundamentalist Christians. There's, a, there's somebody who I work with named, named uh, Nora, who's new at NPR, who had been raised fundamentalist and, and, uh, and there's a, a lot of people at WBEZ in Chicago who were really strong Christians and had their Bibles at their desks and would invite you to see that series of movies where the people are, the rapture movies. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know, if you were like, um, you know, friendly person around the office, you'd get invited to the rapture movies and stuff. Right. Like, 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 there were just Christians in my lives who I really felt close to and adored who were nothing like the way the Christians were being portrayed. And as somebody doing documentaries, I just thought like, what Christians really are is not being captured by the press. 
And so that just created an opportunity for us to, to document w the way people live their religion. It just seemed like a really interesting thing that nobody was talking about. So I don't know if you agree, but I agree. I, I think the people that I see portrayed on the news are caricatures or in media or in movies are caricatures of the Christians I really share life with um, and, and do life with. And so the fact that um, Christians and the word Christian has been sort of taken hold by things like this, where we ask questions like, you know, well, I'm born again, and so then, you know, keep back because that's apparently really scary. Um, or maybe you're a Christian, but are you a true Christian? So we start to qualify those things sometimes. Or, or you're a Christian if you study the Bible, right? So that's how you know you're a Christian. Or if you thank Jesus when you get a Grammy, then you know you're a Christian, right? Have you ever watched the Grammys? There's lots of people who thank Jesus, and you're thinking, but is that, I, you keep using that word, and I don't think it means what you think it means. Um, and then, you know, hi, I am a Christian, or I'm a Christian if I have the Jesus fish on my car. Then I'm a real Christian. Um, or, or at least you drive like or one. Or you drive like one, hopefully, or not. You know, or Bono. Bono's like the real Christian, right? Because he's like sort of the best of all the Christians out there because he's doing all this great work. So um, all those things, like what is a Christian, and, and how do we talk about this? And I think one of the reasons why those of us who are followers of Christ— who are Christians, have shied away from that term, we've started to move away from it because we live here. We live in a land that's divided by politics and where somehow religion has gotten mixed up with that political structure and where we vote people in and out and we decide that there's very clear demarcations between good and evil and black and white and there's very little gray and we've just decided that we already know that we know that person based upon the label that we've given them. But maybe if we had a view like this, or maybe even if we stepped further out and we were looking at a view like this. Or if that's too broad, maybe I'll help us narrow that down even more because I travel a lot to a place here. That when I travel to the Middle East, the word Christian actually means something pretty different than it means here. I have one of three choices. I mean, with, with exceptions in some of the more... Um, let's say, modern democratic countries like Israel, where you would have people who would identify with a faith belief system as Jews, but they may not necessarily be practicing that faith. Um, with the exception of that, almost every person in the Middle East is religious. And you're either a Jew or you're a Christian or you're a Muslim. And I'll tell you, when I'm here in Silicon Valley, I know that when I wear a cross around my neck, that that communicates back to that sort of like extreme weird caricatures where it's either between Grammys or Bono or Fox News or Focus on the Family or whatever the caricatures in the media. Unless, of course, someone has recently listened to This American Life with Ira Glass and heard a good story about Christians. Most of the time when I'm in community here um, outside of the church, if I use the word Christian, that means bigot, closed-minded, um, not willing to have a conversation, not loving, um, judgmental. But when I'm in the Middle East and somebody says, what religion are you? It is easy for me to quickly say, I'm a Christian. Because it means something there that it doesn't mean here. It actually distinguishes me between the Muslim faith and the Jewish faith and then the Christian faith. And I don't know if you can see right here in Jerusalem, but we have this beautiful church here, and then the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim mosque here, and then right over here is the Western Wall, and we also have the location of one of the um, most beautiful synagogues inside the Jewish walls, inside the city walls in Jerusalem. So within this small area of Jerusalem, you have the three major monotheistic faiths of the world sharing space, and it matters very much who it is that you say that you follow. So when we use the word Christian, for me, because of my context living here and not just in Silicon Valley, it means something incredibly powerful. And I'll tell you what it primarily means for me. It means that I've had an experience of God as love. And I'm not suggesting at all that the other, three, the other two monotheistic faiths don't also have that ethic. But as a Christian, this is what that has come to mean for me, that a Christian's a person who follows Christ in the knowledge that they are desperately loved by the creator of the universe. 
and they long to share that transforming love with others through their very lives. That's what it means for me when I say I'm a Christian. Here and there. It means that I know I am desperately loved, that the Father is very fond of me. Not because I am awesome, although I am. No, I'm just kidding. But because he is, and it's in his very nature, because God is love. That God just loves me, period. Not he will love me more if, or that God will love me more because, or God will love me but, I didn't do this right, or God will love me if I do all these other things right. God just loves me, period. We think that's a really important message to repeat, even though it may sound elementary or Sunday schoolish or something that you've heard your entire life, because the reality is the vast majority of us understand this concept intellectually, but we walk out the door of the church or we get at home or we participate in family and work, and we don't live anymore out of a place of love. We live out of other places that hijack this core key identity. I was speaking up at a church in San Francisco, and one of the things that the, the leadership there was asking me to share a little bit about is that this, this congregation that they're loving um, so much and, and are trying to raise wonderful godly families is they feel like there's a lot of families just living out of this fear of what's going to happen to their kids as they continually grow up, or they live out of this constant pressure to perform or to achieve or to accomplish more or to pursue more and more and more and more and more. And so as we were talking about this, you know, you say a person who follows Christ and and knows that they are deeply loved. Okay, so we kind of all get that, or maybe that's kind of familiar. And, And I think I'd like to ask is, do we really get that? Does your life live out of a centralized, very solidified identity as somebody who is desperately, deeply loved? And then ask yourself the question of the decisions that you make, or the fears that you have, or the anxieties that you sometimes worry about, or some of the decisions that you have to make in life, and do you live out of a place of feeling like a failure your entire life, like you can never do anything right? Do you live out of a place of performance where you feel like you have to get to a certain uh, level or stature or or certain status in order to be valued or, or be loved? And I think our one of the reasons why we want to talk about Christian is because I think this word can be redeemed, as we've talked about, and now you can hopefully think about this word in its core central identity in this definition that we are proposing and and conversing about. Um, And we hope that that brings a lot of healing. In the conversations that we've had, and again, uh, even in the counseling that Danielle and I have been doing, including counseling myself through a lot of things, reminding myself, you know what, God deeply, desperately loves me, and I forget that so quickly and so easily. And, and this is how Jesus' ministry starts. This is what it first happens in all of the Gospels, is that Jesus goes down into the water at the Jordan at the inauguration of the beginning of his ministry, and as he goes down into that water and he comes back out, God rips open heaven and shouts, this is my son, I love him. I'm well pleased with him. And it's from that identity and that knowledge that Jesus can then, by the same power of the same Holy Spirit, be brought into the desert and experience temptation and trials and suffering and then be brought back out and start to lead and minister and love others because the core of his identity is that he is loved of the Father that the Father is fond of him, that the Father adores him, that the Father is well-pleased with him. This is my son. And if any other identity has been placed on you as a Christian is a person who does the right thing, a Christian is the person who is hyper-obedient in 16,000 ways, a Christian is the person who gets it all right all the time, like, yeah, I, I walked into church a little bit limping and bedraggled, but now I've got it together and I'm not allowed to limp or be bedraggled anymore. That is not what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who walks around saying, I am deeply loved by the creator of the universe. And, and I know that because... Jesus tells me so. And the way in which I follow Jesus is to become more and more aware of his deep 
love for me. This is what Jesus shows us. This is what, in my opinion, distinguishes me from somebody else, is that in the person of Jesus Christ, I get to see how the Father loves. And that the Father loves by bringing his own Son into our lives. Uh, One of the persons in my life that really started to teach me this was a guy named Brennan Manning. And he has since passed away just this last year. And if you haven't read one of his books, you should pick them up and devour them. But I went on a few different spiritual retreats with Brennan Manning when I was um, growing up in in college and then in in different developmental years in my first uh, 10 years of ministry. And when I first went on that spiritual retreat with Brennan Manning, I was a little disappointed, actually, because I thought the year before we'd had Tony Campolo, and I really liked him. So I was thinking, come on, like, really? Who's this Brennan Manning guy? Never heard of him before. God rocked my world in about two seconds flat. And one of the things that Brennan started talking about was, you know, he, for those of you who don't know, he was a Catholic priest who was no longer a Catholic priest at this time because he had gotten married to a really good-looking woman. And so, of course, that would, you know, already derail your, you know, perhaps expectations of what a priest would do. And then he also had a severe alcohol problem and was in recovery and struggled with that for the rest of his life. Brennan Manning would get up in front of groups and start to talk about how much God loved him. In that full brokenness, and in that first night that we sat there, he said, you know, just close your eyes for a minute. Why don't you guys just do that? Just close your eyes for a minute. Picture the father sitting in a chair. Now picture yourself climbing up onto your Abba father's lap. Lean your head against his chest. Listen to his heartbeat. And relax in the truth that your Abba loves you. And we would do that for 30 minutes, for 40 minutes, and just practicing the presence of God, practicing the presence of experiencing what it would be like, even for those of us who were, who maybe didn't have positive relationships with an earthly father, or those of us who couldn't conceive of what that might have looked like in a positive light, that to start to understand that part of following Jesus, part of being a Christian, is to heal our image of God and in ourselves and understand how desperately we're loved. In every pastoral counseling office I've been in where I do pastoral counseling, I have a very loud clock, and I put it on the wall so that as I pastor somebody and as we're doing counseling, I can hear the click, the beat of that clock to remind me of how close the Father's heart is and how close his presence is for me and for the person that I'm working with. I love that concept of being close to the Father's heartbeat. And in that moment, in that evening, I realized that I had made God into the image of my parents. And my parents are wonderful and amazing, but they are not the Heavenly Father. And I had started to realize and and had lived most of my Christian life thinking, God could love me more if. Because my parents loved me unconditionally, they said so, but they also said things like, we will always love you, but we don't always like you. They were brutally honest, right? None of this, like, cushy, like, everything you do is awesome parenting style. Like, this, I'm 40, okay, so go back with me a while. This was when you were allowed to skin your knee. And they, were t- they told you, you're not great at that. You should do this other thing because you're not great at that, right? And this might, you might be like, oh, my gosh, that's so damaging. It was kind of helpful and damaging all at the same time, right? Like, all of those things together. And so I had grown up thinking that God could love me more if... I was a great pastor if I had never ever made any giant sin mistakes, like if I only did like the ones that you do during the day, you know, like just occasionally, but none of those like nighttime after the sun goes down giant sin mistakes. So I was pretty sure that like as long as I could get my life in order and kind of keep it there that God would love me more. Because it felt like that sometimes with my parents. And again, I love them and I adore them and they are fantastic and I have the best parents in the world. And I also felt that they would love me more if I was a lawyer instead of a pastor, right? They, they would love me more if I made a lot of money instead of was going to be dirt poor the rest of my life, that they would love me more. If, now, they may have, I might have been confusing like for love and approval for love, but I had put that on God. And in that moment, on that spiritual retreat, I started to practice the full acceptance that God just loves me, period, no matter what. And I live well on the side of grace. My sister, a few years ago, ran, um, she did the um, Alcatraz, Escape from Alcatraz Triathlon. 
This is crazy. I think so too. So what she did was um, she got on a ferry in the dark in the middle of the night and the ferry goes out to Alcatraz, not to the island, just next to the island. And then they say, jump from the top deck of the ferry, you know, in your wetsuit. And my sister said at that point, she was like, no, thank you. I've rethought this decision. I'm not going to do that. But one of the things that they told them is as you start to swim back towards shore, back towards the marina, as you start to do that, do not aim for the marina. Because if you do, you will be swept out through the current underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. If you're going to swim from Alcatraz towards shore, you better aim just a little bit east of that because otherwise you're going to be off off kilter. She said she started aiming for the Bay Bridge. Like she was like, I'm so afraid of being swept out to sea. I'm just going to start swimming completely inland like this other way. And then, you know, she just course correct a little bit like this. So afraid of that. In my life, I know that I as a human being, and most comfortable with rules, with judgments, with trying to sort out my world between black and white, who's in, who's out. So I err so far on the side of love and of grace in my practice spiritually, of knowing who God is and how I can express God to others. I aim for the Bay Bridge because I think if I aim for the Bay Bridge, I might get close to who he is. Because my humanity is to pull me right out from underneath in the current in the Golden Gate Bridge and say, you're in, you're out, you're a true Christian, you're not a true Christian, you did it right, you didn't do it right, I did it right, I didn't do it right today. My own thought process in my head at the end of the day. And instead now at the end of the day, I just feel like God's got my picture up on his fridge. He carries it in his wallet. He's like, do you see my daughter Danielle? She totally messed up today. It was terrible. I love her. And I just think he's really fond of me. And I think that's what being a Christian is. It's to experience fully the love of the Father through the Son. The whole Bible talks about this. The reason why Jesus knows this loving Father, this amazing God of the Bible, is because this is what he grew up reading. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, and he is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Have you guys ever heard of a God whose primary command is love me? That's the first one, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with your might. What kind of God is this? Psalm 42, 8, by day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. By day he directs his love to me. This is how Jesus knows this father because he grows up reading texts like this. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. And yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Isn't that a beautiful passage? Like God knows, he's designed all of the heavens. Like the, when you stare out at the stars at night and you look at that star that may not even exist anymore because you're watching not just space but also time. And when you're staying there and you think of all of that massiveness and yet God loves you, God loves me, and we're still important in all of that. And ultimately, this beautiful passage in 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. What a powerful argument, by the way, for the existence of God. <laughs> you know, a lot of people say, well, you can't see God, touch God, you know, pour him in a beaker and measure him and kind of do that kind of a deal. Oh, guess, guess what? You know, I've seen people love each other. There it is. There's evidence of God. And as we, as the church together, and as Christians, as identifying ourselves as those people, love one another, we're proving in many ways the existence of God. It's a beautiful thing. Do you truly, really, truly believe that you're loved? Do you really know that? 
Do you really, truly believe that the Father is fond of you? Have you really embraced the fact that God is love and it is in his very nature to love you, period? He can't do anything else but just love you. He just loves you. Fully, completely, present tense. Not like he did love you a long time ago, but present tense, fully, completely loves you. When you live in that knowledge, when you accept that truth, when that love of God falls down on you and on me, then, through the power of the person of Jesus, we are Christians. When we choose to follow Christ in the truth and knowledge of how much the Father loves, how much the Father loves all of us. Love one another, Jesus said. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. What I love about that passage of Jesus is that it's not just about how, like, you should work really hard to be nice to your neighbor, and we'll just call that love. And that's how the whole world will know that you're my disciples, because you're going to be loving and nice. Yes, but first, you know that you are loved. Jesus says, as I've loved you, as you've experienced me loving you, as you have experienced me coming here to express life to you, as that has happened, now then, because you have been loved, you can now love others, and that's how people will know you're a Christian. That's how they'll know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And it's kind of that simple. And then in that moment, in that entirety of Christ's life, as then he will meet death on the cross and the grave and then overcome the grave, that's why Paul can say in Romans, I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers or height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because if death and the grave could not separate Jesus from God's love, then it cannot separate us either. And we are fully enveloped in the truth of God's love for us. Nothing can separate us. Nothing can tear us apart. And by the way, even if you don't want his love, he still gives it to you. It's always there, always available, always his arms wide open waiting to let you come home. Anytime you want to say yes. Okay, so the word Christian is going to continually be used. You're going to see it in the media. You might actually use it yourself. Somebody might actually ask you the question, are you a Christian? Here's a little tip. Ask them, what do you mean when you say that word? Just simply ask them a question. Listen carefully to their definition. And as they define, well, I think a Christian is dot, 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 and they fill in the blank, you now have an opportunity to filter through and say, hmm, according to your definition... Now, can I share with you what I think my definition of Christian is? And then share with them, in your way, according to God's Spirit, how He's moving you, share with them this amazing, beautiful identity. Christian is not just the things that we affirm, the doctrines that we check off, a title that we put on a bumper sticker on our car, Christian is ultimately an identity of love that flows through us out into the rest of the world. Just one quick note on that. Um, In December, Rabbi Ari, who's the rabbi of the synagogue here of Etzheim, and a good friend, came and gave a message here at Spark entitled, Why Etzheim Rents to a Church. And in the middle of that message, and we're just, I'm just sitting over here, he said, and you know, ultimately, one of the reasons why we rent to Spark is because I know Danielle. And he said, we've been friends for a long time. He said, I know Kevin. And he said, I know, I see how they love. And I know that any community that they're part of will love like they love. And I about fell out of my chair. Because I felt like this was happening. 
that I don't have to sit here and do anything else other than simply love through the power of Jesus in me, the hope of glory, to simply allow the presence of Christ in my life, to simply live out the truth that I am desperately loved by the Father who sent his only Son for me, for us, for the world, that when I live out that truth and I start to just love the snot out of everybody else in my midst by the power of Jesus— that people start to notice that and believe that that will be passed on to the other people that are in our midst. And I don't know, maybe then they'll say, that person must be a Christian. Because they love with a love that does not make sense. They love with a love that reflects the love of the Father unto the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think ultimately what we're talking about is, in my mind, a fantastic example of what we mean when we say redeeming this word. As we are challenged and commissioned to live this way, be bold in identifying yourself as a Christian and in some ways cause a problem for other people to say, wait a second. It's kind of like Ira Glass. The Christians that I know yes. and the Christians that I'm in relationship with are nothing like what I see on TV. They're nothing like the caricatures or the demeaning pictures or whatever that we see in the media. And this is what I think is a wonderful opportunity and challenge for us. In fact, Marcus Mumford, when he came out in that article and said, I don't want to identify myself as a Christian, there was another article that immediately came onto the scene that was being passed around and said, no, 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 Marcus call yourself a Christian. Use that word. Use that term. Because as you are embracing, uh, as best as you know, the core message of Jesus, that's what we need f- as a church and as a body and as a, as a faith and as a community of people out there identifying themselves as Christians because of that identity. And the reality is the only reason why that word is difficult is because of about 30 years of history recent and a lot of media here. So why would we allow cable news to take away a word that has meant follower of Jesus, fully experiencing the love of God and passing that love on to others for 2,000 years? Why would we let something that's only been around since, you know, I remember I used to have a TV where you had to turn the dial, right? So, I mean, this has not been around that long. Let's redeem the word. And why don't we all become the exception to the rule? If somebody has a rule out there that says, we think Christians are X, Y, and Z, be the exception. Just blow up the world. It's going to be awesome. Just do a little bit different. Just be a little bit different. Which leads us to our word, church. Church. Anybody know uh, know about The Onion? Has anybody followed The Onion? They're satirical um, (laughs) news reports. They're all fake kind of a deal. And one of them that just made me laugh out loud, I hope you find it as funny as I do, is one of their titles was A Cardinal Shows Pope How to Build a Church by Interlocking Fingers. (laughs) Right? <laughs> here's, here's the, the church, church. Here's, here's the, the steeple. steeple. Open, Open all the doors, doors and see, see all the of the people. people. <laughs> Close the doors and hear them pray. Open the doors and walk away. Oh, I didn't even know yeah. that. Good. Bam! Children's pastor just throws down. Right <laughs> That's there. right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> but with this new definition of Christian, this also means a new definition of church as well. Which, or a very old one. Or, or a very old one, actually. Yeah. Uh, now, church is a really hard word for me. It's a little bit actually harder than Christian because it sounds so institutionalized. And when we think of church, we think of institution or we think of organization. In fact, that's oftentimes the two that go hand in hand, church and organized religion, the institution, the power structure, the authority, the hierarchy, and all those different types of things. A building. The building especially, which is uh, common colloquial, and that's something that we will still use. But in this particular definition, a church is just simply... Christians who are deeply loved by God and who are loving people who may happen to gather in a building, but the definition of church is this, us, every single one of you, us together participating. Now, we want to talk very briefly and recognize that throughout the history of Christianity and throughout the history of the church, things haven't been perfect. Things have not been exactly the way God perhaps wanted them to be in the church. You want to talk about Richard Moore? 
Richard Wombrand, and I think I saw actually one of, he was in charge of Voice of the Martyrs ministry. He was a Romanian um, Christian pastor who was um, imprisoned by communist Romania years and years ago. And I saw someone out there with a Voice of the Martyrs um, Bible, uh, a Jesus Freaks Bible is what it's called, um, that tells some of the stories of people who have been martyred for their faith in Christ. Uh, Richard, while in prison, um, talked about, was asked regularly, um, what about the church? Because there were a lot of people who were in the church, the state church, the, the Catholic church and the, the institutional churches in Romania who had agreed to compromise with the Communist Party and therefore not have to go to jail, whereas Richard was saying he was not going to compromise with the Communist Party and was being persecuted and brutally tortured, even at the end of his life, um, still unable to walk for the brutality. So when he was asked about the church and the complexity of the church, he said this. It's the crime and errors of the church which give, which give us so much more to admire in it. A hospital may stink of pus and blood, and, that, and in that lies its beauty. For it receives the sick with their disgusting sores and horrible diseases. The church is Christ's own hospital. Millions of patient are, patients are treated in it with love. The church accepts sinners, and they continue to sin. For their transgressions, the church is blamed. To me, on the other hand, the church is like a mother who stands by her children even when they commit crimes. And whatever its faults, the church has much that is sublime in it. The sea drowns thousands of people every year, but no one contests its beauty. I think we're very quick to look at church and to look at institutionalized churches and say that is there was an error there. There was something that happened there that was wrong. And we can point out the ways in which it's broken very quickly. But none of us sit on the shore of the ocean. We can go to Santa Cruz or Half Moon Bay and sit and we say, wow, this place is just terrible. There's a few people that die in it every year. Yes, the church, like the ocean, is beautiful and can be dangerous. There can be places and, and times where people get hurt in the church. And to quote one of my friends, she says, church hurt is the worst hurt. If you've been hurt at church, it can hurt terribly, deeply to the soul because it's people who are trying to love God and trying to love one another and in that make these huge painful errors. But there's great beauty in the church. And here we have a, a story, a clip for you. Um, from the New York Times and Nicholas Kristof. I'm sharing a bit about that beauty. This is a journalist from a famous newspaper called the New York Times. Father Michael Barton is a Catholic missionary who came here to southern Sudan from Indianapolis in 1978. He has endured civil war and a smorgasbord of diseases. He speaks fluent Dinka and other local languages. He looks after four schools, providing education to children who otherwise wouldn't get any. So there's some not there. Kiswahili is not there. Chemistry, physics, in places like this, the war-torn, impoverished corners of the earth, there are many Father Michaels. In my travels, I've met nuns and priests across the globe who give their lives ministering to the least fortunate among us. So. Maybe the Catholic Church should be turned upside down, because with every abuse cover-up, every paleolithic position on ordination of women, on condoms, on sexuality, the Vatican discredits itself and separates itself from its roots. But it's a mistake to disdain the entire Church, for the Church is larger than the Vatican. And to me at least, you find the great soul of the Catholic Church not in Rome, but in places like the villages of Africa or the slums of Latin America, places like this parish. Last year we celebrated 75 years from the founding wow. of the mission. Isn't our rectory? You know, I know. Isn't our rectory? You got to see the. You got to see the straight line of all the buildings up. All the buildings built 75 years ago and still standing. And still standing. All by Italian brothers. The need in southern Sudan is overwhelming. Women are more likely to die here in childbirth than to graduate from elementary school. Father Michael has put up with decades of violence because he believes passionately in education. And his students are among the most academically accomplished in the region. So if he was one, first out of how many? He was 1,955. 1,900? 1,500 and? 1,582. Okay. Wow. I've been imprisoned. I've been beaten. I've been hit. Huh? little things 
uh, and, and of course there's all these diseases, malaria, and all this I'm here, sure you've had yellow malaria. fever, of course, yeah. of course. I haven't had it for a couple of years, but it's very normal yeah. to have malaria and all kinds of things, you know, intestinal parasites, uh, etc. Yeah. That's just normal. I mean, are there some times when you just think, boy, I wish I was back in Indianapolis? Boy, are there. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> boy, are there, of course. Of course. So many times. This is the selflessness that I've seen time and again, and it's difficult for me to reconcile with the recent church scandal. Much of the church truly behaved really disgracefully, but it also does seem to me that at the same time, that, you know, there are priests and nuns and, you know, doing just extraordinarily good work. And I just have this kind of a disconnect when I, you know, I see those two sides. I mean, that, that's what you've got to see. The, the human and the divine, isn't mm -hmm. it, huh? The human and the divine. It's all that conflict. We in journalism tend to focus on the human failings of the Catholic Church. Those are inexcusable. But while we denounce the abuses by senior church officials, let's not forget the heroic work by so many people at the grassroots. Divine work, even. This is the true church to which I tip my hat. Here, religious figures are judged not by the magnificence of their vestments, but by the magnitude of their compassion. Well, luckily, you know, I love that guy. Have something. And do you love his description of the church? You have to see both the human and the divine. The two hand in hand in one another. And that is, if we think about it, each and every one of us. Are you not created in God's image and in his likeness? And then are you not also very well aware of your own humanity? And that is the church, where God uses and fills each and every one of us up with both the human and the divine. So I love that picture. Bill Hybels, who's a um, pastor of Willow Creek in the Midwest in Chicago area, said the local church is the hope of the world. And I think when you see clips like that one, you, we know this to be true. That a local church breathing the love of God into that community, living sacrificially, moving forward in ways that we can't yet be there, but the local church that's there, wherever there is, is making a difference and changing the world. So what is the church? The church is an assembly filled with people engaging and being transformed by God's love, which means the church is filled with love, hope, power and potential. What power in the universe can, can, can transform a hate-filled, greedy, selfish heart into a love-filled, generous, selfless, serving heart? The power of the transforming love of Jesus Christ, which has been given to the church to steward and share with the world. That is what a church is. A church is a assembly of people filled with the knowledge that they are deeply loved by God and that because they are deeply loved by God, that they're going to share that love expressed through the person of Jesus Christ to everyone they meet. That's the church. And when you, when I think of those identifiers, I'm thrilled to be a Christian and I'm thrilled to be part of the church. I would love to be the hope of the world, right? I would love to be able to be, participate in Christ, the hope of the world to our community. I would love to be in a place of power and potential and influence. When we think about where we are in Silicon Valley and are we climbing up some sort of corporate ladder or, or can we go to the Global Forum with Thomas Friedman and not have people think we're freaks because we're from the startup church in Silicon Valley attending, you know, next to the HP CEO and Google and everybody else. When I'm there now and with this definition, I can sit and say, you know what? I'm part of one of the most transforming, most incredible organizations that's ever been on the face of the earth. It's 2,000 years old. Our CEO is infallible, quite literally. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal. He, he doesn't fire any one of us. Even if we really mess up, he picks us up. He dusts us off. He helps us to do it differently. And guess what? Because of the local church, we've got power and potential through the power of the Holy Spirit that is transforming the entire world. And I love being part of that. 
And I love knowing that it's not up to me, that it's not up to me getting it together, making a great presentation before that CEO, having it all sorted out, that it's just me simply walking around going, wow, I am deeply loved by the Father. He's so fond of me. Thank you, Jesus, for showing me that. Now fill me up so I can share that with everybody else and watch the world change. And this system works. This works. We're all here in this room, which is technically a synagogue, but also assembly. And we're here in this room, in this place, assembling because for 2,000 years, it has worked. And we've seen the power of God on display for all of the world through the power of Christ in the local church. And I believe Spark is going to be able to do some phenomenal, amazing things because we've got power and potential that is not up to us. So as we're our startup church and as we're coming together and we're trying to figure out what it is that God's going to do, we might look forward and say, wow, 2016 Super Bowl's coming to the Bay Area. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a slave-free Bay Area by 2016 because 43% of the people being trafficked on the West Coast are coming through the Bay. Can Spark do that? With the power of Christ, we can. Absolutely. In partnership with all of the other local churches, we can. In partnership with everything that Christ is putting in each one of us. So whatever it is that God's got you passionate about, that God's excited to send you, whatever your area of influence is, whether it's students or education or family household stuff or transforming a marriage or a relationship or a family set or your workplace, wherever it is, or maybe it's simply just starting with the transformation of your own heart. Get ready. Jesus is at work. And it's really fun to know that we're loved by him and that we can share that with others. So um, go home and read 1 Corinthians 13 if you're not quite sure how to define love. It starts with love is patient, love is kind, right? And then if you're confused, if you're not quite sure who God is, just interchange those words. God is patient, God is kind. If you're not quite sure how this father loves you, God is patient with me. God is kind with me. God is generous with me. And just go home and practice that. Just read all of 1 Corinthians 13 and practice that discipline of seeing how you can experience that in your life. It's a challenge, too, because 1 Corinthians 13 has been co-opted by every wedding in the world. Right, yes. So it's, uh, that, that'll, that'll be good for you to kind of detoxify. Redeem, more redeeming. Redeem. Yeah, exactly. Yes, so. more redeeming. So. If God is love, and then we sit there and read an entire chapter about love, then we are reading an entire chapter about God, not just romantic love at, at a wedding as doves are released in the air, um, but instead a true understanding of what it means to know God as, as love. Uh, one last quick story. Um, Jesus talks about how we need to have faith like a mustard seed, that the kingdom of God is like that, that it starts out small and gets big. And I think a lot of times when we look at the brokenness in this world and we see the things that aren't quite right, we can sit there and we can say to ourselves, I'm not sure my little bit, my little influence is going to be able to do anything. But the truth is that this small little bit grows into something big and beautiful and makes transformative changes in our lives. And one of the ways that I see the church doing this and that we've personally experienced this, um, a couple months ago, I saw a testimony from a friend online on Facebook about how God had showed up miraculously for her and her family. And in the moment, I was a little bit depressed and a little bit frustrated and felt like God hadn't noticed that some terrible stuff had been going on in our lives. And I was hurt by some of those things. Um, as some of you know, we had partnered with somebody to try to help bring healing and restoration to a situation. We ended up um, losing quite a bit of money in that process of trying to bless that person. And it was deeply painful for about a thousand reasons. So as I read that testimony, I thought, that's great for you. I'm really glad God showed up for you. I want a story. I want a story. I'm glad you have a story, but I want a story of how God showed up for me. So I got on my knees, and I just prayed for a couple minutes. It was not a big prayer. It was not a teary prayer. It was just, dear Jesus, I want a story. Have you noticed that we got pretty hurt? Could you please show up and show me in any way that you are paying attention? 
that you've noticed. Amen. The end, right? So I got back up, and I started getting ready for Bible study that night, and it was about four, and it's seven. So at seven o'clock, I taught Bible study. At the end of Bible study, some dear friends who are part of our community came forward and said, um, God told us to give this to you. And I was like, okay, thanks, you know, whatever, like, amen, you know, and I ran off to my next meeting, and I had a couple minutes between the meeting, and I opened up the card, and inside the card was, we prayed about this, we believe God told us to do this, and was a significant financial gift. And I burst into tears, not because of the gift or the size of the gift, but because three hours before I had prayed, God, please, Show me that you care. Show me that you've noticed. And this is the power of the church. The church, people in the church, listened to God talking to them as I was talking to God and came and showed me and more valuable than any gift they could have given was the knowledge that Christ had heard my cry and had given me a story. And I haven't wanted to tell the story because I knew I'd cry when I told the story. So I wanted to tell it. But then I felt like I prayed for a story and I, stories are meant to be told. So now I'm supposed to tell the story. So I'm telling the story. But when I think about how the church is the hope of the world, this is what I mean. is that people who show up and love the stink out of one another and just show up in beautiful ways when there's been hurt and brokenness and say, we've heard God and we are going to extend and love in a tangible way um, to express the love of Christ in your life. And then we get to go, ah, I've not seen God, but I've seen someone love me in the name of Christ. And now I've seen God. The local church, the hope of the world. Uh, Dave and the team's going to come back up and lead us in our closing song um, as we depart. Thanks for hanging with us for a little bit. In this week's email, we're going to send you out this little morning prayer card as a response. And we wanted to give you, you know, we like giving you gifts every now and then. And uh, this is one that we hope that you click on download, print up, and then post somewhere, maybe on your bathroom window, bathroom window, bathroom mirror or somewhere uh, as part of your morning uh, routine and exercise, um, as a recognition and a remembrance of what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be a part of the church. And it says this, my morning prayer. God, this is a new day. I freshly commit myself to the role you have invited me to play. As you are building your church in this world, I am awestruck again today that you include me in this grand, life-giving, world-transforming endeavor. So today, I joyfully offer you my love, my heart, my talents, my energy, my creativity, my faithfulness, my resources, and my gratitude. I commit all of myself to the role you have assigned me in the building of your church so that it may thrive in this world, and I will bring it today. I love it. I will bring my best. You deserve it. Your church deserves it. It is the hope of the world. And we would encourage you, Danielle and I are going to do this ourselves. We're going to print this up, put this on our bathroom mirror, and remind ourselves and just pray this and say, okay, God, love me, remind me of your love, and let that love overflow and through me into this world. And all of us then, as we do that individually as Christians, when we gather into this place or gather anywhere, we become more and more the church that God has called us to be. So let's sing this together in response.